Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Today is the sixth Sunday of the blessed season of Pentecost. It's the final Sunday before the Feast of Pentecost itself. And on this past Thursday, we celebrated the great Feast of the Ascension. So we find ourselves this Sunday in between two major feasts of the Church, the Feast of Ascension this past Thursday, and next Sunday, the Feast of Pentecost. So we should say something about this glorious period of these holy 50 days and its significance for us and our salvation. When we say Christ was risen from the dead and ascended into the heavens and sat at the right hand of his Father, we should not be surprised that Christ ascended, for he is, as he said in the Gospel, always with the Father, in the Father, and from the Father. So when we celebrate the ascension of Christ, we celebrate the ascension of Christ with our humanity. We ourselves have ascended with Christ. And this is the significance of the feast for us, is that he has exalted our humanity and placed it at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean? Of course, Christ at the right hand of the Father is not something physical, but it signifies, of course, the idea that the, the one who sits at the right hand is the one who shares, the one who is invited or who is exalted to be with the Almighty One Himself. He places us in this position of honor. He places us in this position of exaltation. Christ is heavenly, but he descended to the earthly. So his ascension is not something that uh, surprises us or, or causes us to, to celebrate as if to say, wonderful that you ascended, but it is to celebrate our own exaltation. And some of the fathers would say that this is in fact the greatest feast of the church, because in the resurrection, of course, the redemption was accomplished and death was overcome. But in the ascension, we see the true purpose of our humanity, not just to avoid death, not just to live beyond death, but to actually be raised in honor, to be raised in glory, to be invited into this intimacy of the Holy Trinity. And the first thing then that we should ask ourselves is, and St. Paul asks this question in his letters, in different ways. He says, if Christ is seated in the heavenly places, if Christ is ascended, if Christ is exalted and glorified, then why do you put your hope on things of the earth? Why are you still gazing below? In other words, if we are united to Christ, if, if in our sacramental union with him through the Eucharist, if in our uh, union with him through the gift of the Holy Spirit who unites us with him continuously. If, if we are with one with Christ, then it's like, it's like if my spouse is one with me and my spouse goes on a long journey, where's my heart? If, if, I, if I'm really one with my spouse, my, I feel like my heart has been, is longing to be with where my spouse is where my love is. My heart was taken to that place. So if Christ ascended with, with my nature and your nature, then do we feel that longing for heaven? 
Do we feel that intense desire for eternal life? Or, or is, is heaven just something that we, we get as a sort of bonus in this life at the end? There should be pain in our hearts. There should be a desire that is full of longing and, 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 and sort of this, this distant love that, that I long for. So this is the meaning of the ascension, our exaltation, but also sort of to redirect our, our gaze, our, our priorities. So we should ask ourselves this question today. Like everything else in the Christian life, the ascension is a feast that sort of raises another sort of paradox in our faith, that the ascension actually means a greater presence of God, not a lesser presence. We might think that it would be the opposite, that Christ ascended means that he's going away, that somehow God is more distant from us. But he actually tells the disciples the opposite. He said, it is for your own good. It is for the benefit of you and for everybody else that I go to the Father. For if I do not go, then I will not send you the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying to us? He's saying to us that my, my presence among you now is, is that of an individual. Here you find me in Galilee, there in Jerusalem, speaking here, performing miracles here. But now my presence through my divinity will be everywhere. Christ will be, not be limited to Galilee or Jerusalem or to any place or to any time, but through the power of his divinity and the power of the Holy Spirit in us who unites us to him, Christ is present to us now in a greater way than he is present if he were simply again in his incarnation walking among us as one of us. Now, we of course as material beings, we want something we can see and touch and grab and lay hold of. And that's why Mary Magdalene, Jesus said to her, don't grasp me, don't cling to me. We have to, we have to let go of this need to know God in this physical way. Of course, he gives us physicality through the, the sacraments, but he wants to point us to his presence, which is deeper, more pronounced in our lives. So the ascension then is, is the sign of God's greater presence, not a lesser presence. And the ascension also points us to the way of ascending. You know, we, ha we as humans, we, we, we seek this ascended life, if, if I might use that expression. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. Aren't we all sort of running through life, trying to get ahead of one another, trying to ascend? We're trying to climb the ladder of success, of security, of possessions, whatever it might be. Aren't we, aren't we seeking to ascend every day of our life? It's something inside of us. We seek to get ahead. We seek to ascend. But the problem is, is because of our fallenness, we do this to the detriment of one another. In order for me to ascend in this life, I have to destroy my brother or my neighbor. I have to sometimes be deceptive. I sometimes have to be, place myself above the needs of another person. So there's a sort of backwardness to our desire to ascend. And so Christ comes and tells us, yes, I know that in your human nature, you have this desire to ascend, to progress, to grow, to be something. But let me show you the way. It is by descending. 
And that's why, again, St. Paul says in Ephesians, he who ascended was first he who descended. We are reminded that the true ascension, the true rising above ourselves, the true glory that is ours comes through our humbling, through our humiliation, through our putting somebody else in front of us, not behind us. So much of the Gospels and the epistles speak to this simple reality. Sit in the back, that way they tell you to come to the front, you will ascend. Seek the last place and they will offer you the first place and you will ascend. But you ascend by descending. You are glorified by being humbled. And so all of these things are beautiful ways for us to meditate on the Feast of the Ascension. I want to just return to one of the final scenes of Christ appearing to his disciples, but this is taken not from this morning's Gospel of John, but from the final passage of the Gospel of St. Matthew. This passage is often called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Let me read just the passage to you so we can reflect on it. This is the sort of Christ's farewell message to his disciples before his ascension. He says, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Now the eleven, of course, Judas is no longer with them, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, even unto the age to come. So, the scene is, is that the disciples are told to meet Christ on this mountain in Galilee. And there, when they see him after the resurrection, St. Matthew tells us that they worshipped him. This probably doesn't surprise us, but what surprises us is immediately afterward, he says, but some doubted. Some doubted. It's sort of a mysterious uh, inclusion without explanation. And as a matter of fact, Christ doesn't even address their doubt. He immediately after, he perceives that at the same time they worshipped him, and, that, and at the same time some of them doubted him, he simply says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. He gives them this sort of uh, unique command. So what's happening? What's St. Ma Matthew doing here? Well, let's, let's, let's go back to the very beginning of St. Matthew's gospel. At the very beginning of St. Matthew's gospel, there's another mountain. It's the mountain that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Christ seated on on a rock, and on this mountain, he says to them, blessed are you, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. And he gives them this beautiful evangelical instruction on who they are to become, who they are to become. If we think about the Sermon on the Mount, it's a sort of portrait. First and foremost, it's a portrait of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, speaks first of all of who Christ is. Gives us this image of Christ. He is the meek, the peacemaker, the pure in heart, the poor in spirit. 
And so he gives them this portrait and he says, this is at the very beginning who, are you who you are to become. And then at the end, he takes them again on a mountain and he says, now this is what you are to do with what you have become. So sort of like at the beginning and at the end is, is a very simple way in which St. Matthew presents the Christian life. The Christian life is first about becoming and then second, it's about doing. We are not called just to do. There are many people who in the world do many things and do many great things. And may God reward everybody for all the good and great things that they do. But the, the primary calling in Christianity is first to become. And with what we have become, to do. And we'll see how this is so important in this great commission that Christ gives to his disciples. So then he says to them this commandment to go into the world, to go forth and to baptize and to preach the gospel and to teach the people all things, to make disciples of all nations. And then he promises them that he is with them every day, all the days of their life until the end of the ages. So there's a certain pattern here that that Christ presents to his disciples. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son has completed his work of redemption and salvation. And now he says to the disciples and to the church, now I send you. Just as I was the image of the Father, this is very important, just as I am the image of the Father, so you will be the image of me. Who's you? Not just the 11, they died. You and I, the church. The church will be to the Son what the Son is to the Father, his body. He is the head. And the church will go into the world, as the 11 go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, preaching to them, teaching them all things, reminding them that God is with us all the days of our life until the end of the ages in order to return the nations to the Father. So you see this beautiful cycle. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Church, the Church goes into the world until the end of time, bringing all of the fruit, all of the, uh, we have the, the parables of the, uh, the net and the fish, the wheat and the weeds, Right? Images of, at the end of the age, Christ will collect from all of those who believed and all of those who followed him and be presented in glory to the Father. So this is, this is the beautiful teaching of our church today that, that the church is, 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 is not a human institution. Or I should say the church is not merely a human institution. The church is not primarily a human institution. The church, of, of course, consists of human structures and human people, but the church is the body of Christ, and it is the very presence of Christ in the world. It is the primary presence of Christ in the world through which the sacraments and the gift of the Spirit through baptism are given. So he says to his disciples, he says, this energy, the energy of my resurrection, the energy of my glory, 
will be given to you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and upon the church. And with this energy, you are to go and to transform everything that is earthly and ordinary and sinful and mediocre in the world by becoming the, the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ, but most importantly, by becoming the heart of Christ. The church is to be the heart of Christ, the place of grace and mercy and love and compassion. And again, let's think about the response to the doubting of the disciples. They have just, they have just come off of a very difficult period in their life. They all fled, except maybe John. One betrayed another, who was the chief of the apostles, betrayed or uh, denied him. And even in this vulnerability, and even in this um, doubt that, of, that they have in themselves, they are presented to see Christ again after his resurrection, and still they're suffering with doubt. Still their weakness is showing itself. But what is Christ's um, command sort of indicate? If, again, if we read into the text, what, what is he telling them by not addressing their doubt? His, his response to them is simply, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, now go and do this. But Lord, what about my doubt? What about my weakness? What about all the faults that I committed? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and now I tell you, go forth. So there's really only two options. The first option is to defect, right? To just walk away and never come back. And the other option is to obey and follow. See, he doesn't address their doubt, and he doesn't always address our doubts. He tells us in the face of our weakness, in the face of our doubts, in the face of all of your failures and my failures, he says, let's not talk about that. You know what I want to talk to you about? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I'm giving it to you. Go forth. It almost sounds ridiculous after that to argue with him. But Lord, I'm weak. I'm sinful. I have failed and I will fail again. And his response is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go forth. What a beautiful sort of commandment that he gives, his final commandment to the disciples and to us, the church. He's basically saying, you will learn with time that it's not about you. It's not about your doubts. It's not about your failures. It's not about, it's about me. It's about my authority, which I have the power to give you. And I choose to give to you. And I will give to you if you believe and if you continue to follow me. That's why the only other option is defection. It's just, it's just to walk away and never look back. So I wonder in the face of what we have said, what do we say about this sort of modern trend of those who say, I'm spiritual but not religious? I think while it sounds like a noble thing to say, and uh, many are, are very well-intentioned who say it, 
And what they probably want to say is that I want to just focus on the good spiritual things and not the bad religious things that people commit and institutions commit and sort of mess up. But they missed really the central point of this great commission, the final words of Christ, his sort of, his sort of will, his testament to his church. There is no such thing as being spiritual without being religious. There is no such thing as being sort of spiritual without the human institution of the church, the human divine institution of the church. Christ makes it very clear that the only way to receive my presence in this world is through the church. Now, many people are not going to like to hear that, but the, his words are very plain. And in many other places in the gospel, even before, he says, for example, to the confession of Peter, on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not destroy it. So Christ didn't come to establish a spirituality. Christ didn't come to establish uh, a sort of, you know, um, ideology that anybody can follow. He came to establish a church. To divide the church from Christ is to divide Christ from the Father. As we saw in that beautiful sort of diagram, that cycle. And so the disciples then are, are given this, this tremendous mandate in, in each one of us, in the face of our weaknesses and our sins and our failures and our, all of our doubts, we all have today in this local parish of St. Paul, we are the church. We are part of the one church right, around the world. We all have that mandate to make disciples of all nations. And the way that Christ commands his disciples to do that is not, again, to just simply... So he gives them, again, if we, if we, as we said in the beginning of Matthew, what are we to become? At the end of Matthew, what are we to do? Well, then in the same, in the same command, he says, be baptized, right? Be baptized, and then... Or, or to baptize others, first them to be baptized, and then teach them all things that I have commanded you. The same pattern, right? The same pattern. First, make them something which is children of God. Let them become part of the body of Christ. Let them become integrated into me. And then teach them what to do. It's the same pattern. The church, through the sacraments, is always doing both. It's giving through the sacraments and through the, 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 the life of the Spirit in the church. It's giving us the means to be transformed to become Christ, and then it's giving us instruction on what to do once we are becoming Christ, what, what, how we are to live our life, the morals, the ethics, the, the, uh, the disciplines, and all of these beautiful things. And then he ends by saying, behold, I am with you. Again, this word behold, at the beginning and at the end. In Matthew chapter 1, in the very beginning of Matthew, St. Matthew quotes Isaiah, who says, Behold, remember the word behold, behold, maybe we don't use it so much in modern usage, but behold here um, gives us a sense of urgency and, and uh, reflection and attention and seriousness. Behold, okay? Behold. So he says in Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. So in the very beginning of Matthew, the declaration is, Behold, behold world, behold the nations, behold that a child will be given, and this child will be called Emmanuel. And then at the very end, the last thing in Matthew is Christ who says, Behold, I am what? With you always. So the beginning, behold, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then at the end, Christ says, Behold, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you all the days of your life to the end of the ages. So, the, 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 the word all the days, or I'm with, with you always, in the Greek, actually, the connotation is not just I am, like when somebody says, well, I always will love you. No, it's different. The, the, the literal translation would be, I am with you all of the days, or I'm with you every day of all of the days until the end of the days. Right? So one of the spiritual fathers, he, uh, meditating on this, he says, there is an important difference between a friend saying to you generically, I'll always love you, and the same friend saying, I love you today, and I will love you tomorrow, and every single day after that, I will love you no matter what. And that's what Christ is telling us. He's saying, behold, what was promised to you about Emmanuel is me. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And I give you this authority, I give you this power, but more importantly, I am with you today, I am with you tomorrow, I am with you every day of your life until the end of the ages. What a beautiful ending to the gospel and to the story of, of our salvation that's expressed through the, the lens of Matthew. I am with you every day, all the days, right? If we could, if we could say, what is the the theme that runs from the beginning of the whole Bible to the end of the Bible? What is the, the central message of the whole Bible? It is God who says to us, I'm with you. That's it. I'm with you. I created you, but I didn't just create you and let you float out there. I'm not disinterested in you. I'm not uh, lacking in care of what's happening to you and every day of your life and all of your thoughts. If we ask ourselves, and I'll end with this thought, if we ask ourselves, what is the, what is the, the greatest sort of existential like, crisis, you know, question that we ask ourselves as humans and, and philosophy has helped us try to address these for thousands and thousands of years, are these questions of like, what is truth? What is the purpose of life? Who is man? What is death? What happens after death? What's on the other side of death? But I think what Christ is telling us is, is that the real question is not, for example, to say, and this is where I think we as humanity, we get stuck. Today we ask questions like, does God exist? Right? Is there life after death? But the question of the Bible is different. The question that the Bible answers is very different. It's not does God exist? Is there life after death? The question is more, am I alone? 
Am I alone in this life? Despite all of these wonderful people in my life, family and friends and communities, but inside of me, in the deepest recesses of my, my being, is there another one who knows me and sees me and loves me? Am I alone? Am I alone in my thoughts, in the darkness of my thoughts, in the turbulence of my thoughts, in the anxieties and fears and all of these things? Am I alone? Am I just speaking to this empty void within my head? At the moment of my death, the greatest crisis that I will face, the moment of my death, when I sense my, my, my soul departing my, my body, Am I alone at that moment? I know that everybody around me is not going to be able to be with me in that experience, for they are alive and they will remain alive. But at that moment, there is something that I'm going through and I'm asking myself, is there another one with me at this very moment? And on the other side of it, am I alone? I think that's the question the Bible answers and what Christ says to us today. Behold, 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 I am with you every day, today, tomorrow, in every aspect of your life, I am with you. It's like the greatest sort of conclusion to the, from the beginning of Genesis until the Gospels. May the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ be a source of tremendous grace for the church and for all of us, and to him be glory now and ever into the ages of the ages. Amen.